0: morning. I want to thank you for uh, having me here. It's a privilege to be with you on my birthday. I can not think of any other place. When I was a small child, I thought my 40th birthday, I want to be in Millersville, Pennsylvania, <laughs> preaching to the people of God. So bucket list crossed off. It's nice. Um, thank you for being here. Uh, it, it is a strange thing, um, even uh, when the culture does seem to be getting the Christian thing right, which is very rare. It's a strange thing even then. It is certainly a strange thing now for people to get up on a Sunday morning, um, even gain that extra hour, you know, to show up and be um, all in these little rows listening to someone talk about God. That's a strange thing. Um, God has to make that possible for you to be here. So none of you are here by accident. You're here by uh, divine decree. And what a precious thing to be with uh, our brothers and sisters this morning. Um, I want to take just one sort of... um, uh, kind of underrated, um, um, overlooked narrative often in Genesis. Um, If you'll uh, take your Bible out and turn to Genesis chapter 14, this is not something that I remember hearing much about when I was a child. They didn't do flannel graphs of this story. And it's, it's a shame because this is like the very first action movie. Uh, Right here in Genesis chapter 14, the first adventure, rollicking adventure story is here in Genesis 14. And I think we kind of get thrown off because it has these very difficult names. You know, We have these hard names to pronounce. So um, you can say a little prayer for me as I read through these and and try to pronounce them. But you don't know how they're pronounced anyway, so it should be okay. Um, You probably know the story of Abraham, at this time still called Abram. Um, called out of a pagan culture Called away from his home uh, To follow God Abram was sort of like The first missionary church planter In a way As he and his family um, You know Leave their sort of a Pagan ancestry Leave all that they've known To go off into the unknown To follow the Lord around He has promised them um, A great inheritance He has promised them uh, An heir He's promised them All sorts of things You know, I'm going to make your descendants Like the sands and the sea And all that sort of thing And so Abram just sort of Is following And he doesn't really know Exactly where to go He's just following The Lord's leading And like a lot of us, he has good days and he has bad days, except for Abram. His bad times tend to be really, really bad. Sometimes he acts really, really foolishly and very, very sinfully. But then sometimes he has these shiny moments. When we get into Genesis 14, um, we see he's on a roll a little bit. So right before Genesis 14, you don't have to look there, but... He and his nephew Lot have had this sort of conflict between them. They're settling in the land, and there's some sort of tension between them. And Abram, um, he, he takes the high road. He goes to his nephew, and he says, look, we don't need to have this sort of conflict between us. You know, uh, you know, it's not good that um, you know, we're at odds in this way. There's plenty of land for both of us. A lot of it had to do with kind of uh, you know, the territory and who owned what and all that sort of thing. And so Abram you know, says to Lot, you take whatever you want. You, know, you look around. You take whatever land you want, and whatever's left over, I'll take that. It's a you know, very um, um, excellent thing for Abram to do, especially as you've seen uh, you know, where his heart has gone before this moment. And so he's very generous. He's kind of um, abandoning himself to the sovereignty of God. And so Lot, of course, his eyes get really big, and he takes this land near Sodom and Gomorrah, in Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and Abram, of course, takes what's left over, and the Lord blesses him for that. So now when we get into um, G- uh, Genesis chapter 14, we kind of see now the fruit of these decisions, the fruit of Lot's decision to take you know, the land that he took, and then sort of where Abram finds himself kind of trusting in God um, uh, in the aftermath. So let's begin reading in verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Kidorla Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Going. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kidola Omer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kadola Omer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Carniam, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shavakiriatham, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Peron, on the border of the wilderness. There will be a quiz later, so please remember all these things. <laughs> Picking up verse 7. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal king of Goim, Amraphel king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus." Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions, and the women and the people. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let's thank our Father for it, and we'll ask him to bless our time together celebrating the good news that is found here. Heavenly Father, we ask that um, your spirit would be um, tender but powerful in the hearts of your people this morning not just in this congregation, but in your congregations all over the world, with our brothers and sisters celebrating your word and the good news that we find in it. Father, we pray that your Spirit would show us the glory of your Son. We know that we cannot change without beholding the glory of uh, your only begotten Son. And so we ask that you would press the truth of grace into our hearts, that we would um, see the glory, uh, not just of who he is, but also what he has done for us, Uh, by your will and by the Spirit's power. We ask that the uh, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ would be our, uh, our passion and our treasure this morning. Uh, as you show us in, in this historical narrative, uh, a picture, a foretaste of what your son has done for his bride. And it's in the name of your son, the name above all names, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. I do think we see something here in, in this narrative, as we see in a lot of the Old Testament narratives, um, that kind of gives us a genesis of um, why adventure stories, action movies, even romance stories resonates so much today. Um, I've heard some scholars, you know, some um, historians look at uh, the Old Testament, look at the narrative of the scriptures as a whole, in fact, and say, really, it could almost all be summed up with the kind of um, narrative slogan, uh, uh, slay the dragon, get the girl. Right? So this kind of phrase, slay the dragon, get the girl, is what makes the fairy tales endure for so long. And I think it's why uh, you know, when, when Hubby is, is charged with picking out the movie for movie night, um, it, it tends to be something with explosions in it. There's something about rescue, about, about conquering, about conquest, and it's why when Wifey is, is, is charged with picking out the movie for movie night, it's always something sweet. It's something romantic. And it's why I think the best stories, the most enduring stories, have pieces of both of those in, in them. Um, why is it? Uh, you know, that I would, um, you know, as soon as you start telling me they're going to make another movie with Liam Neeson saving a family member, I'm like, shut up, take my money. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm there. I will see umpteen of these movies. Um, you know, obviously, you know, it's an action movie, so as a, as a man, there's something about manhood there, I suppose. But there's also something deeper. There's... Uh, a trace of good news that this guy, over and over again, would rearrange the world. I mean, he's 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 overturning. He is conquering the enemy in in you know in the original case to rescue his daughter who's been kidnapped, and he will go to any length possible to save the girl. Now these sort of um, narratives, I think, resonate not just in the, in the sense that they entertain us, but they tap into something deeper—a story that God is telling with um, the universe, the story that He's telling. With the world, And it's sort of projected even in the beginning, in the beginning pages of Genesis, even earlier than Genesis chapter 14, where even in the curse, um, we see that kind of first gospel. The Lord is cursing the serpent, for instance, and he says to the serpent, um, you're going to bite his heel and he's going to crush your head. And then when you fast forward all the way into the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, where we see how it's all supposed to end, what do we see? We see the great serpent is being thrown into the lake of fire. And we see the bride of Christ redeemed, adorned, perfect on her wedding day, being presented to the Son of God. What has he done? He is telling the story from beginning to end of slaying the dragon, conquering evil, vanquishing death and evil, and rescuing the bride. And then we see this in all these little stories all throughout the scriptures. Once you see this kind of gospel narrative, you begin to see it. And I think we see it here. Of course, Abram is rescuing his nephew, not a, a girl, but what happens is really kind of that sort of resonance. Abram, as we said, is sort of on a roll here narratively. He has some very low moments like selling out his wife you know, to, uh, in fear of uh, the Egyptians' kings and all this sort of thing. And then later we're going to see the wheels are going to come off the cart again. But at least in this instance, he is, by the glory of God, really having a very kind of shining moment. The power of the Lord rests so mightily on Abram in this passage, that where he previously was so afraid of the Egyptians that he manufactured some ruse to pass off his wife as his sister because he was afraid of them, he was acting wimpy in those moments, now he's looking at the sort of multiple armies of these bloodthirsty men and he says, let's go fight. Let's go fight these guys. And what we are seeing in sort of the backstory, the cultural history, the um, geographic tension that's going on in the world is ever since Babel, this sort of spirit of bloodthirstiness has come about. This is sort of the root of everything that's wrong today as it comes to you know, geopolitics and, and world tension and war and all that sort of thing has its roots here in Genesis. We are seeing how sin unleashed into the world. It doesn't just fracture us between God. It, it fractures us between each other. And so there's these rival clans and rival armies, and this bloodthirstiness keeps occurring within people. And you see the different factions and the different tribes, and they're forming different armies, and they're preparing for conquest. And this is really the first war, actually, in the Scriptures. So while Abram and Lot are prospering and growing and expanding their own territories, all the pagan kings are seeking to expand their own territories. And so this warfare and this violence keeps increasing. And if you hold up the start of this chapter next to the last chapter, you see the Jews, Abram and Lot, sort of settling their differences by parting their ways, but the pagan kingdoms are settling their differences by going to war and trying to kill each other. And these are huge armies. Just to give you some backstory about what these kingdoms are like and who is um, in these kingdoms, these are men who do not fear God. They are warriors, they are very violent men, they're very trained men. Um, in some ways, they're reminiscent of the Nephilim that we read about in Genesis chapter 6. They're very big and they're overpoweringly strong. Um, Rephaim and Zuzim were families of giants, we are told. It's from this group that later in Israel's history, Goliath sort of comes out of These are the genesis of Goliath. And these were men who were like 8 to 10 feet tall, a mighty race, who were greatly feared by people all around them. And so even the um, invading kings who came in actually swept these giants before them. That's how uh, um, bloodthirsty and violent and, and, and well-trained all these invading kings were. And now the kings are moving across Canaan and they're wiping out people left and right. And they're staking their claim, planting the flag for their own kingdom. And they're stealing away treasures and they're stealing away slaves. And now they're approaching the Jordan River Valley close to Sodom and Gomorrah where Lot has thought it would be a great place to set up his household his own little paradise and suddenly war is upon him five kings from the surrounding areas go out with their people to wage war against the four kings of the invading armies and so you have this big battle taking place the battle of nine armies and the four enemy kings prevail and they push the others out. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are, are fleeing. And some of their armies are in such fearful flight. They're just, I mean, they're just tearing off that they don't see all these sort of tar pits, sort of asphalt pits underneath the sand. And a lot of them get caught up. It's a very gnarly, gross thing. Some of them flee into the mountains. And it's just, it's just bedlam. It's, it, it's chaos. And among the people that get taken captive, wrapped up in this warfare, are Lot and his family. Except for one guy. One guy escapes, right? Are you seeing the movie yet? Right? The armies have come in to capture the kidnapped, and one guy escapes. And he's all tattered and he's he's sneaking away and somehow he makes it all the way back to Abram's house and he stumbles into the door, right? And it's nighttime and and Abram and his boys are sitting around a table and they're playing cards or something, and the guy stumbles in, he's like, You're not gonna believe what happened. Lot's been kidnapped. Lot has been taken. And Abram, what does he say? What does he do? He, he doesn't have the disposition of the man who tried to pass off his wife as his sister. He doesn't say, well, poor lot. I guess that's what you ha- you know happens when you set up shop in Sodom and Gomorrah. I told him it wouldn't be all that it's crocked up to be. No, he says, four armies, you say? Four? Four armies? Four armies who defeated five armies? Well, let's get the boys together and go sort this thing out. Right? Some of you guys are feeling it right now, I never knew this happened. What do they do? They scrounge up some more guys. They're going house to house. They're, you know, all of the um, people, the tribesmen that Abram has sort of collected along the way as he's preaching the gospel of Yahweh, as he's going, these men who come on, these Hebrew, these proto-Hebrew warriors, 318 of them, they are trained warriors. And they take off after the enemy kings. And when they come upon them, they divide up and they make war and they conquer. And Abram rescues his people. I I picture him, okay, cinematically, finally finding the tent where Lot is is tied up, where Lot is prisoner. He he busts in, and Lot sees Abram, his uncle, peeking his head through the tent. And he says, I knew you'd come for me. (laughs) Just like in the movies. And Abram's like, yeah, get on the camel. Let's go. (laughs) Hot pursuit. 318 men against a mighty army. Now, if you know your Bible, you know this is not an uncommon thing. But if you also know real life, you know this is an uncommon thing. This is a very uncommon thing. But it's something that we see throughout the Old Testament in the historical narratives over and over and over again the little defeating the big, the weak defend, defeating the mighty. And what it's doing, I believe, is, is setting up something for us. Historically, this is a real, um, true narrative. This isn't fiction. This is not like the movies. This is a real thing that happened. But it's setting up something for us, metaphorically, theologically, that takes place in another historical event that actually happened that the New Testament tells us all about. And I think we can make sort of two good news applications from this historical event connected to what Jesus Christ has done. And the first is this. Every Christian is always bigger than his enemies, even when he's not. Every Christian is always bigger than his enemies, even when he's not. One of the most um, profound experiences of my life was having um, lunch, uh, Mexican buffet lunch with my friend Ray. Ray's a pastor in, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, that I was very fortunate um, to find myself um, under his mentorship, he's the most encouraging, the most Jesusy man that I've ever known, and I never walked away from time with Ray not feeling like I could just conquer the world. But we were at Cancun Restaurant in West Nashville, eating enchiladas, and I was, you know, throwing a, a typical pity party for me. I was uh, we had planted a church, and it was not going very well. It, uh, it proceeded to not go, you know, very well, and I was just kind of. Licking my wounds in front of Ray and telling him, you know, all the things that were terrible, uh, you know, about the church and everything that were terrible about me and just how awful I was. And um, you know, I'm not sure what I expected him to do, but but to listen. And Ray looked across the table at me and he said, "You know, this reminds me of Gideon." And I looked at him and I and, <laughs> and I said, "You know, it reminds me of Gideon as well. Why don't you share with me how it reminds you of Gideon and I'll see if it see if it matches up?" I had no idea what he was talking about i said i said how does this remind you of gideon ray he said you know gideon was was hiding out from the midianites he was down in the in the wine press threshing out the wheat and he was trying to, he was laying low he was throwing his own little pity party down in the winepress and the angel of the lord showed up and 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 greeted gideon he said hello mighty man of valor and gideon did the whole thing like are you, who are you talking to are you looking are you talking to me what Ray was saying to me in that moment was not that I was a great church planner, that I was a great pastor, or even that the things that I were saying about myself were, were wrong. I mean, it's kind of like in my flesh what I wanted him to do was say, no, Jared, you are awesome. You are incredible. But that's not what he did. He went straight to who I am in Christ rather than my own sort of um, excellencies or my own sense of awesomeness. The angel says to Gideon, the Lord is with you. O mighty man of valor. And this was hugely encouraging to me because he wasn't puffing me up. He was reminding me of who I am in Christ, that I'm more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. And so as little and as low and as weak as I felt myself to be, because of Jesus, I was cosmically uh, on conquest against the spiritual uh, forces of wickedness and darkness. And this took me back to um, junior high when I felt the Lord was calling me into ministry. It was between 7th and 8th grade years, and I was at youth camp, and I was reading about the call of Moses, and there was something about the call of Moses in the scriptures that resonated with me. The, the Lord used that to kind of you know, plant the sort of alien idea of pastoral ministry into my brain, even when I was a kid. And I don't know if it was something about, um, you know, it talks about Moses being slow of speech. You know, um, I had a stutter from kindergarten all the way into college, and so there was something about that speech impediment, whatever it was. Maybe he didn't stutter, but he just wasn't eloquent or something. There was something about that. But as I'm reading it and I'm seeing Moses is making all of these excuses. He has the laundry list of his own deficiencies, right? I can't talk. My brother is, you know, is a lot better than I am. You should go talk to my brother. You know, it's like all of these things, list, you know, on and on and on. And God doesn't respond to Moses the way that I think Moses wanted him to res- You know how Moses wanted him to respond. I feel like he wanted God to say, Moses, come on, I know everybody. I'm God. There's a reason I picked you. You're the cream of the crop. right? That's what we want. But God, he doesn't say any of that. In fact, he almost says, look, I know all these terrible things about you. That, you know, I made you. And in fact, you being awful is kind of the point. Right? Do you get any sense, like when you fast forward in the New Testament and Jesus is calling his disciples, that he's calling the cream of the crop? Right, as they are constantly like 10 steps behind Jesus. They see things, they experience things, they are taught things, and they instantly forget them the next day. Just like the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness who've seen these amazing things, and the next day they're like, you brought us out here to die, and then God does another miracle, and the next day they're like, I'm hungry. And it's just on and on and on and on. God is saying, you being a nincompoop is, is, is kind of part of the point. It's so I will get the glory, not you. And so what does God say to Moses? And what is the Lord saying to Gideon? And what is the Lord doing for Abram? And what is the Lord doing for us? He's not saying, you are awesome. He says, I will be with you. And I'm God. That's better than you being awesome. That's better than you being strong. This is how Gideon was a mighty man of valor. The angel says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. In what universe do we call a man hiding, laying low, full of fear and a sense of his own impending doom, a mighty man of valor in the universe that's been invaded by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you know the rest of Gideon's story, it kind of sounds like this, only even more so, like Abram's story. You know that the Lord instructed him to reduce his army. He had 22,000 men in this army, and he reduced them to how many? Do you remember? 300. 22,000 to 300. 300. He went out, Gideon did, with 300 men and they defeated the entire Midianite army with jars and flashlights. Unbelievable. And we have the shepherd boy David defeating Goliath. You have Joshua's team presiding over the crumbling of Jericho. You have Samson who was just the wildest. The only story they told us about Samson in Sunday school was about the haircut. But there's so many more fantastic things, weird things happening in Samson's life over a girl In Judges 15, Samson says, I will do the Philistines harm, right? Let's put that on the poster. I will do them harm. That's the trailer right there. And what does he do? He catches 300 foxes, and he ties torches to their tails, and he lets them loose into the Philistine camp. That's weird. (laughs) That's weird. And they tie him up with ropes and he like hulks out. I mean the ropes like it says they like melt around his arms and then he finds the jawbone of a donkey and he wipes out 1,000 men with the jawbone of a donkey. What happened? This is not because Samson is a great guy. In fact if you're being true to the narrative you see Samson is not a very good guy at all really. And it's not even because David was a strong kid. I mean he's like playing the harp, watching sheep. I mean, this is not, you know, right? You're not making him the quarterback of the football team, right? <laughs> and it's not because Gideon was a brave man. And it's not because Abram is a rock-solid guy in and of himself. These guys were bigger than their enemies, even when they weren't, because God is bigger. In the case of Samson, it says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. In the case of Gideon, the angel doesn't just say, hey, mighty man of valor. He says the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And we are learning here from these historical examples the theological truth that is found in 1 John chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And we see this in the power of the gospel message itself, which the perishing world sees as foolishness. It's a scandal. It's it's seen as weakness. This crutch, this Christianity thing, is just a crutch for the weak. No, it's a sword for the weak, actually. Paul says the gospel is the power of God. And we see over and over again how the gospel is taking down strongholds, it's vanquishing spiritual darkness, it's demolishing the devil and his demons, it is rescuing captive who are as lost as they can be, hostage to their own selfishness. Into spiritual wickedness, bound up in sin and hopeless to the point of despair, the gospel message of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, which is offensive and foolishness and scandalous to the world, bursts the bonds of sin and death and fills poor souls with glorious light. Paul writes in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And one of my favorites in Romans chapter 16, Paul says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Your feet. God will crush him, but he will do it under your feet. So I read something like that, and it makes the problems of my day seem really, really, really small. It makes my fear, it makes my anxiety, it makes my weakness and my concern about it seem really, really petty. The God of peace is going to crush Satan under my feet. My friend Christian George says, Do you know that the Christian who feels secure in Christ is the boogeyman of the devil? Like the devil's checking his closet for the Christian who's united to Christ. He's looking for you under his bed. Every Christian is always bigger than his enemy, even when he's not. If you feel overwhelmed, if you feel overburdened, if you feel desperate, despondent, you can look around at your circumstances and they may get better or they may not. But you need to make sure to look up to where Christ, your Redeemer, is seated at the right hand of the Father. Because if you trust in Him, you are seated with Him there. And if this is true, then Richard Sives is right when he says every Christian is an impregnable fortress. He is a man who cannot be conquered. He has defeated the biggest enemies that you'd ever have to face, sin and death. There's nothing greater, more fearsome that you face in life than sin and death. And Jesus comes and defeats them and gives the victory to you. It's amazing. That's the good news. Because of this glorious theological truth, then we have this one as well. No Christian will slip through the cracks, even if he feels lost. No Christian will slip through the cracks, even if he feels lost. See, Lot was living high on the hog until Kidorla Omer and his buddies showed up. And after he's taken captive, he is languishing in the enemy's tents, probably rehearsing all of his mistakes, thinking that all hope is lost. And I don't know about you, but I've been there. You ever been there? Where you look back and really all you see are the regrets, and the regrets begin to kind of color your future. I will never get out of this mess. I will never be this. I will never have that. I'll never be happy again. I'll never be blessed again. Whatever it is. Because we're looking back and we're not seeing all the places the Lord delivered us. We're seeing all the things we did wrong. And that's, that's satanic. It's, it's a, um, a good thing, a gracious thing to be convicted over your sin, to be repentant for your sin, to even as it's regret your sin, it's a satanic thing to dwell in your sinful past. To let it color your future. Because it's either defeated at the cross or it isn't. And when you dwell in the sins of your past. And think that it colors your future. Essentially what you're saying to Jesus is. Your work is not as great as my work. In fact my sin is greater than your blood. And so I think Lot is is sitting there. Thinking he's going to die. As any natural person would. And a sense of despair and despondency has come upon him and he's probably thinking about this tension he had with his uncle and how his uncle let him have whatever land he wanted and he's probably thinking I'm such an idiot I took the you know I took the best pieces of land I should have given something good to my uncle and you know to honor him and so you know I mean this is just that's how I'm going to end my life being greedy and I'm just going to sit here and die and be forgotten And sometimes we look at all of our mistakes and our recurring sins and the voice of the accuser comes in and he starts to whisper some really plausible arguments into our ears. And sometimes Christians who are united with Christ, seated with him in heavenly places, have thoughts like, I'm probably not even saved. Or God couldn't love me. God couldn't forgive me. Jesus must be ashamed of me. And sometimes it's not um, hard to hear that from God, or at least what we think is God, because we hear it from so many other voices in our lives and then just the voice inside of ourselves. Or maybe you don't question your salvation necessarily, like you can't go there, theologically you're very sound there, but emotionally you've messed up so much that you think Jesus probably sort of just kind of tolerates you. Right? For the longest time as a believer, I was a very neurotic, timid believer as a, as a kid, and, and, and still am, but not to that extent, I suppose. But there were times where I felt like, yeah, Jesus loves me, but it's because he, he has to. Right? Like he, It's like he has to love me. Like God loves me because the Bible says God is love. And so he, 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 he can't kick me out. I walked the aisle, I signed the card, I raised my hand, all that. So it's like he has to let me on the team. That's what I felt like God's disposition towards me was. And every time I would mess up and every time I would sin and every time I wouldn't have my spiritual and religious act together, there was so much that I got wrong. I I couldn't keep a good enough quiet time. I couldn't keep my temper in check. I began to worry about all sorts of things. I would nitpick other people to sort of mask what was going on in my own life, in my own heart. I cared too much about what others thought of me. All these things adding up in our lives. We are so messed up. John Newton says, I am a riddle even to myself. This is why we should not spend a whole lot of time trying to diagnose other people's problems. Like, we have enough inside. You you will never solve this. And the net result spiritually is, I know God loves me because he has to. I know God saved me, but what choice did he have? And you think Jesus saved you because he had to? You think you were begrudgingly saved? Like God is holding his nose when he lifted you up out of darkness and united you to his son? I always go back to adolescence and, and comparing how I feel, how, how settled justification in Christ is for me. And I used to sort of picture it this way, sort of like Jesus is in the room with all the cool kids, Right? Because Jesus is the only one who has it all together. It's all the cool kids are there. And I'm told I can go I, I can go to the party. I can go through the door. But I'm thinking, you know, this is how I, I have to open it very slowly. And I have to put my head in. You know, make sure no one's going to jump on me or anything like that. And when I step in, like, I don't want to be noticed. Like, if, if he sees me, he'll kick me out. But I can, I, can, I can walk into the room and I can just stay in the corner and just be there and nobody see me. And I, I walk in, and what I'm picturing is that Jesus is over there talking with his friends, like all of you who are very spiritual. You're all hanging out with Jesus, laughing and having a good time. And I walk in, and Jesus sees me out of the corner of his eye. And he sees me slinking in, and he's under his breath. This guy? What is he doing here? I guess i got to let him in. Father says i got to let him in, so i got to let him in. Is that how you think? The Lord responds to you. Is that how he welcomes you? I don't believe so either. But that's how I felt for a very long time. When I'm focused on the gospel, though, I think it's sort of like, you know, you walk into that room very, very gently, right? You're not sure. Because when you're convicted of your sin, you feel like, I am so not worthy to be here. That's a good feeling. That's a you know, sense of holiness, a sense of that God is God and you are not. And so we very gingerly walk into the room and Jesus sees us. He's with his buddies in the corner. And he sees you out of the corner of his eye. And he doesn't say, shh, this guy. He says, this guy. (laughs) Yes. So glad you're here. You know, in, in Romans, Paul says, we ought to welcome each other as Christ has welcomed us. What would it look like in our church gatherings if we welcomed each other that way? Every time we saw someone, it was the response of Christ running to us. Despite our flaws despite our sins despite everything oh i'm so glad you're here we didn't even know you're missing you got here now oh you make us so much more complete we are stronger with you here romans chapter 9 it is revealed to us that we are his prize he's not tolerating us those who were not my people i will call my people her who was not beloved i will call beloved And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. And he ought to be. But he's not. He's not ashamed. That that, that amazes me. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God doesn't tolerate you, Christian. He loves you. He's singing over you. He's rejoicing over you. So when Abram pokes his head through the tent and says to Lot, I found you, nephew. Maybe Lot wasn't saying, I knew you'd come for me. I think maybe Lot was saying, you came for me? And all that would imply, after all I did, after all I said, risking your life? This is an impossible task to rescue me. And you came for me? Sensing this difference, feeling this difference, is the difference between adorational Christianity and arrogant Christianity. Arrogant Christianity thinks, of course God would save me. Adorational Christianity says, I can't believe God saved me. This is one of the most amazing things about the disciples, that Jesus wanted them, that he chose them. He says to them, you didn't choose me, I chose you, which is an amazing thing. In the Gospel of Mark, you see this sort of, I think it's one of the most telling, if you follow the narrative, the most telling um, pictures of grace because it's one of the most telling pictures of the disciples competencies and and stupidity. So if you remember Jesus feeds the five thousand, right? And he has some bread. You know, he makes like fish sandwiches miraculously for five thousand people. And the disciples, of course, were like, "How are we going to feed five thousand people?" Well, Jesus is Jesus. He's God, and so he makes food for five thousand people. Well, you go a little further along. There, they come to a crowd. There's another crowd, and it's four thousand people, and they have more bread and they have more fish. So it's a smaller crowd. I'm not a math person, but I think this is right. Four thousand is smaller than five thousand, and they have more. So they have more resources. Smaller crowd. And the disciples say, how are we going to feed all these people? So Jesus miraculously feeds 4,000 people. And then you keep reading, and they're on the boat. And, and they're on this boat, and, and Jesus wants to turn it into a teaching moment. And he says, beware the leaven of, of Herod and the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware the yeast. And the disciples say, is he hungry? How are we going to feed him? We don't, we don't have any food. It's like, hello, McFly. It's so, so dumb. And it's easy from this vantage point to go, look what idiots they are. But if anyone was tracking like the narrative of my life, where God keeps coming through, keeps providing for me every day, every year of my life, and then the next day comes and I'm like, how am I going to get out of this? How is this going to work? And he's never failed me. The fact that he would choose us is amazing, if you're not arrogant. It is amazing. It is amazing. And it's also amazing, further, that he doesn't feel stuck with us. That he enjoys being with us. That he rejoices over us. He has rescued us because he loves us, because he wants us, because we are his prize. I don't feel like much of a prize. I turned 40 years old today. I don't feel a day over 65. <laughs> I tell you, that, I'm in that... I know, is 40 middle age? Is that considered middle age? People are living a long time now, so maybe I'm still young. I don't know. I don't, I'm don't. i in that thing where, where um, old people still call me a kid, but young people think I'm an old man, so I don't know like, where I am. I'm in this kind of age, age limbo. But I'll tell you something about getting to 40, and those of you who are this age or older, you understand. Those of you who are not, this is what you have to look forward to. You wake up in the morning and new things hurt. Like things that didn't hurt the day before. Like, where did that, where did that, where did that, that's new, that's a new one. And then the day just becomes about measuring your deficiencies, like what hurts worse and which things you can ignore and all this sort of thing. And all the things that you think you would have figured out, you don't get figured out, and in fact, there's more things, there's more worries. My kids just can't wait to grow up, and I'm like, no, relish being 14 and 12. It is no picnic, becoming a grown-up. And their mind is this, oh, you can do you can drive. You can do. Man, you got to drive all over the place. You've got to run errands. I mean, it's ridiculous. It would be great to say, I'm sorry, I can't drive. <laughs> Don't have a license. You'll have to take care of that yourself. Every day I'm faced with this, this growing sense of my own inadequacy. This is why the author of Ecclesiastes says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come, in which you say, I take no pleasure in them. Because he knows. He's done everything. He's seen everything. He's now an old man who just sucked up the world, treated the world like a great big ice cream sundae when he was a child. And now he's going, if I had only remembered my creator, that's what would have prepared me for all of this. When the evil days come. And so every day you're just dealing more and more with your own sense of inadequacy. Every day, especially as you walk with Christ. See, I had this mistaken n- notion early on, that the more I walk with Jesus, the less sin I would have in my life. And actually, the more you walk with the Holy Spirit, the more sin you see in your life. And you may have these little areas of victory, right? But then you just see more and more areas that you need to address, more and more areas to bring the gospel to. Part of sanctification is, is not just becoming more holy, but also seeing all the dark recesses of your soul that you didn't see before. And I think about myself, God loves me. He wants me. He calls me a prize. Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And because Christ is great, no Christian slips through the cracks. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Jesus brings back his kinsmen. I want to close with um, one of my favorite poetic prayers from the Valley of Vision. Probably some of you are familiar with that. It's a collection of Puritan devotions. And this um, selection I've read at numerous uh, funerals. It became um, sort of a favorite recitation for me. Uh, We we lost... um, more than a few saints at uh, the, the church where I was pastoring in Vermont, um, old and young in some very surprising ways. And um, this became kind of a favorite, uh, a favorite hymn in a way um, to read it as we mourn the loss of, of a saint. And it's called Our Adorable Conquering Redeemer. O God of my exodus, great was the joy of Israel's sons when Egypt died upon the shore far greater the joy when the Redeemer's foe lay crushed in the dust. Jesus strides forth as the victor, conqueror of hell, death, and all opposing might. He bursts the bands of death, tramples the powers of darkness down, and lives forever. He, my gracious surety, apprehended for payment of my debt, comes forth from the prison house of the grave, free and triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. Show me herein the proof that his vicarious offering is accepted, that the claims of justice are satisfied, that the devil's scepter is shivered, that his wrongful throne is leveled. Give me the assurance that in Christ I died, in him I rose, in his life I live, in his victory I triumph, in his ascension I shall be glorified. Adorable Redeemer, thou who wast lifted up upon a cross art ascended to highest heaven. Thou who as man of sorrows was crowned with thorns, art now as Lord of life, wreathed with glory. Once no shame more deep than thine, no agony more bitter, no death more cruel. Now, no exaltation more high, no life more glorious, no advocate more effective. Thou art in the triumph car, leading captive thine enemies behind thee. What more could be done than thou hast done? Thy death is my life, thy resurrection my peace, thy ascension my hope. Thy prayers my comfort. You are bigger than your enemies, even when you're not. And you will never slip through the cracks, even when you feel lost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you, Father, that we have your words, that you could have been content to create the world and set us loose and then retreat into silence. We thank you, Father, that you are a God who has given us your word, which will stand forever. That we have everything that we need to be thoroughly equipped. Everything we need, in fact, according to your servant Peter, to partake of the divine nature. Father, we're not even quite sure what that means, but we want to glory in it, to the glory of your son. And so we thank you that you've not just given us these words, but you've given us um, your word, the word of God, your son who came near and became a man that we might become like Christ. Most of all, we thank you for the gospel, which is unbelievable unless our hearts are changed. And so we ask that your spirit would press more and more belief of your gospel into our hearts. For the glory of your son and the fame of his name here and all over the earth. We pray these things. Amen.